So welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best tech leaders in the world to share with you how to scale your SaaS business from 2 million to 100 million uh, annual recovering revenue. So we bring the best of the best to share with you uh, the scaling up lessons that they've been learning through hard work and very hard uh, uh, challenges uh, so you can avoid uh, some of those uh, issues. Today we have a very special guest. It's really an honor to host uh, G2 Patel, Chief Product Officer and Chief Strategy Officer at Box. G2, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here. So, yeah, uh, of course, Box and uh, yourself uh, don't need an introduction, but uh, just to put up to speed uh, the audience, uh, it would be great to if you could just let us know how did you went working at Box and what have you been doing before? So I, um, I started my career um, actually uh, uh, running my own business. So I actually took the reverse route. I started in a startup. I ran my own business I, um, uh, when I got out of college um, and um, did that for about 15 or 17 years um, back in Chicago and then moved to the Valley and um, went from a um, you know, 25 person company to a 60,000 person company and uh, joined EMC as chief technology officer for their software business. And um, you know, uh, one of the things that they, um, uh, we did over there was as, um, as they were getting uh, disrupted in some of the legacy businesses, we uh, acquired a SaaS property. Um, actually uh, a competitor to box and we uh, and I was C I became CEO of that company and then we scaled that business for a few years and then when Dell was buying EMC um, you know we were going we uh, we sold that asset off um, because you know it's kind of hard to run a SaaS business in a hardware company uh, was one of the big lessons learned uh, it's actually mm -hmm. much easier to do that in um, in a company which understands the business model um, and so we sold that business off. Uh, and at the time, Aaron um, um, had just gotten to the 200 million mark in revenues and was looking for uh, moving from a single product company to a multi-product company. And they had just uh, gone public. And then uh, and he wanted someone who had, who had a CEO background to go out and kind of uh, construct um, uh, multiple lines of, uh, of of revenue rather than a single line of revenue. So we uh, we started talking before I knew it. I was working at Box, and it's um, uh, it's been over four years now. It's been a great ride. We now have about a little over ninety five thousand customers. Um, uh, we've, uh, we've almost we've more than tripled our revenue in that time period. So we're now close to seven hundred million in revenues uh, by the end of this year. Is the guidance um, we'll have. Um, about 67 million plus uh, users, about 69% of the Fortune 500. You know, we're very lucky to have customers like you know Nike and Coca-Cola and Procter and Gamble um, and uh, Eli Lilly and AstraZeneca and there's a bunch of different kind of uh, global brands uh, um, that tend to be customers of ours. And um, we're just um, you know fundamentally trying to simplify how people work and uh, power how people and organizations collaborate together in a, in a more fluid way. That's cool. And in terms of ad count? Uh... We're about 2,000 people. So it's still relatively small compared to, um, you know, some of the large caps. Yeah. Which, which is great, which means that the revenue per employee uh, is, is a very healthy metric uh, at this stage at, at Box. 
Yeah, we think of ourselves as a 2,000 person startup. Uh, there's still a lot of kind of innovative energy of a startup that you'll see in the culture and the way that we, we operate. And that's been, um, um, that's been one of the core kind of ingredients of success for us is keeping that level of um, uh, innovation hunger um, while you're scaling the business is pretty important because the moment you lose that, then um, especially in the SaaS business, um, the way I think about it is you have to earn the right to serve the customer every year in SaaS. And if you don't innovate, then you actually lose that right to serve the customer. So you, especially if you're an entrepreneur in SaaS, don't feel like when you get bigger, you don't have to innovate. You have to continue to keep doing it. It's kind of the Jeff Bezos motto is always day one. <laughs> it's never day two. Day yeah. two is kind of death. Uh, <laughs> so moment of decline, starting to decline. Uh, yeah. Amazon, what a phenomenal job that company has done in just innovating um, organically across so many different lines of business. So like we look at them as an inspiration on how we should we should start the model in some ways. Yeah. So just to give also some context to, to the audience um, and also to, to yourself. So we, we already interviewed over uh, 100 leaders in those almost uh, 90, 90 episodes today. Uh, wow. And we, we have been covering, especially the journey from 2 million to 100 million. We also had a very special series about how investors see the scaling up journey. And mm -hmm. This is the first interview where we can go a little bit for, further, which means how to go from the 100 million threshold to 1B. And as we know, like Salesforce, how to go from 1B to 10B, or as you were saying, Amazon, how to go from 10B to 260B plus, I believe, uh, at this stage. And uh, in the number one position of Fortune 500, uh, I, I think it's still, Walmart with half a trillion or 500 billion uh, in, in annual uh, revenues. So which is really um, impressive uh, what Box has, has been doing uh, so far. And in terms of team, of course, we need to uh, keep adapting uh, the org structure and, and the vehicle to help us scale. Um, so what, ha what have been the main uh, changes uh, that you have been witnessing as, as Box was scaling up? So key positions, the way the team evolved, um, what is your experience uh, with that? I think like if you think of, um, there's some things that, you know, and Jeff Bezos talks about this very well, which is, you know, you have to almost focus on the things that don't change rather than the things that do change to start with um, as you're kind of scaling the business because there are core principles about your business that have to be pretty foundationally strong in order to set you up for success to scale at any level. <laughs> Once you have that, then the other thing that you have to look at is now what are the, because each major step function change that you see actually requires a very, very different mindset and uh, it requires evolution of the way in which you operate. So the way you got from zero to 10 million is very different uh, in the way that you get from 10 to 50 million and 50 to 100 million and then 100 to 200 million. And then when you go from 200 to 500 million, that's a very different kind of stage because now you're getting into, you, you no longer are going to know um, every single deal that you close, you no longer are going to know every single uh, employee that you have in your organization, but they all have to be saying the consistent, 
they all have to be saying consistent things to the market. And if you don't do that, then you actually tend to dissipate your brand. And so, um, the, you know, repeatability becomes a pretty massive contributor to success where rather than going out and trying to do many, many things for few people and you have every customer is slightly different in the way that you do things, what you have to do is build a business model where you do a few things for many, many people. And that, that repeatability actually creates a lot of leverage in the business that otherwise would not exist. So for example, um, if you have a few use cases that you've gone out and identified that you get to be world-class at, and then those use cases continue to get repeated over and over again in every customer, then even things like the product requests that you get back in are going to be very focused on the things that you're already very good at that you're just going to get better at. But if you try to go out and do very many bespoke things that you kind of broaden your aperture too much, what ends up happening is you do something slightly different for everyone, and then everyone comes with a slightly different set of results, and you'll feel overwhelmed because you won't feel like you'll be able to effectively serve the customer. And so I think uh, identifying the repeatable motion, we always think about this as like there's three phases uh, to any company and to any product, and those have to actually continuously be refreshed. So the first phase is you have to achieve strong product market fit. And a lot of companies talk about this, but very few companies actually do a good job at achieving it. And it, it varies from product to product, feature to feature, and stage to stage in a company. You can have product market fit and end up losing it. So you have to be very worried about not losing product market fit. Once you've got product market fit, the second thing that you have to keep in mind is you got to get a repeatable selling motion where you know that you can sell the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And it's actually something that the way in which you approach a customer, the way in which you create demand, the way in which you service that demand is all done in a very kind of repeatable way. And once you've identified that, then start scaling your sales engine. Uh, don't start scaling your sales engine until that happens. Because what you'll do is you'll just have a leaky bucket and you know, you'll, you'll right. keep top of the funnel but you'll have a very leaky bucket that you won't really have any retention of revenue because most of the revenue will just go um, kind of flow away and so those are three kind of stages to think about and we are clearly in stage three we have we have um, a very very strong product market fit we've got uh, a repeatable selling motion um, and we need to just make sure that we continue to keep scaling the business um, but Every so often, you, you tend to identify certain pockets or areas in your business that might not be quite to the degree of product market fit that you would have hoped. Uh, and you have to be very brutally honest with yourself and say, this is actually not solving the problem for the customer the way that we think it should be solving it. And, and, and as a result, um, you know, uh, the worst thing you can do in, um, in, in scaling a business is start drinking your Kool-Aid too much. So you constantly have to validation from the customer and the best way to get validation is not asking them how they think because most customers will not want to offend you and so they'll say good things you have to ask them are you willing to pay for this what are you going to, what would you go tell your boss on how you're going to sell this to them you will find out the intrinsic value that they see in your product and then you have to map that intrinsic value with in fact is what you're doing and is the way that you're advertising it pretty close to what they're thinking they're going to get from it and if there's too much of a difference over there, then you've actually lost the plot somewhere along the line. You know, 
And this this is a very good introduction for um, one of the habits that I think is critical to scale. So number one is to have a world-class team, super aligned and super committed, that really believes in the vision and that has a clear roadmap about what they need to do in order to get to the big area uh, audacious goal. And I believe that the second thing is really about defining the number one priority of each quarter to get us closer to this uh, midterm and, and long-term vision. And as you were saying, uh, we need to have the courage to double down uh, on what is working. Uh, and this can be a little bit easier uh, on, when we are at 10 million ARR or 20, 30 million ARR. But when you surpass the 100 million ARR and we are in the direction of uh, 1B, uh, as you said, you have the, the need to go from a one product company to a multi-product company. So how do you kind of launch new products without losing focus? Yeah, uh, let me actually make a point on what you said earlier because companies at all sizes run experiments. Right? Small companies run experiments, big companies run experiments. The unique aspect of a company is not the ability to run an experiment. The unique aspect of companies that do well is when an experiment works, they know when to double down and make sure that that becomes the most important thing. Um, otherwise, you're just in a perpetual state of experimentation without actually nice. getting that experiment to provide return to you. Right, And so that's, that's a really important discipline to have to say, okay, We've launched a few bets. One of these bets is really starting to pay off. All right, let's go. We're going to make sure that that, that is the bet that we're all, all hands on deck. That's the bet that we're going to go out and monetize on because that's what we need to do. Um, in the absence of that level of conviction, what will end up happening is you tend to keep uh, peanut buttering your investments in many, many areas. And you know you always fall feel like you're trapped for resource and you don't have enough resource and you're not actually making progress because you don't have resource and it's actually uh, a myth. It's not the case. In fact, any company that feels like they have too much resource has one thing for certain: they don't have enough vision. Because if they had enough vision, then they would feel like the resource was not um, uh, was not abundant. It was always scarce. Scarcity of resource just tells you that you have vision. The, the, the important thing is not just having vision, having focus and vision so that you can go out and do the things that you want to do. So that's a pretty important dimension to keep in mind. Going back to your question on how do you launch new products, um, one of the things that I think is hard to do in companies is getting a single product to product market fit um, and getting a single product to a repeatable selling motion and getting a single product to scale. It's exponentially harder to get multiple products to product market fit and repeatable selling motion and getting it to scale. And the way to do that, at least the way that we found that it's worked for us is um, you have to make sure that um, you've given, the way in which a new product gets incubated is very different from a way that an existing mature product needs to get, 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 get managed. And you can't have process from one be applied to the other because you will just actually start to um, you know, create a lot of, um, unnecessary work on one side. Like when you're, when you're um, trying to establish whether or not a product is going to solve a problem, like the most important thing to focus on is, are you solving the right, right problem? And is the quality of the problem a big enough problem for you to go out and solve? That's the first thing that you have to focus on. It's, it, in, in my mind, it's one of the most important things that a product leader does is 
pick, pick the most important problems to solve. And it actually is directly proportionate to the success of the outcome you're going to have. So the harder the problem, you typically tend to find that the higher the likelihood of success, which is very counterintuitive. You would say, why is that the case? Like usually a easier problem would be the one. It's because the harder the problem, the better the brains that you attract to the problem. The, the people that you attract to, the, to hard problems is really high quality people. And when you bring a bunch of high quality people to solve really hard problems, magical things happen. And when you solve a really hard problem um, with really high quality people, then you know it just creates self-fulfilling momentum. So uh, you know the first thing you have to do is make sure that you pick the right problem to solve. Once you pick the right problem to solve, identifying a team with the right chemistry and the right passion for that mission is really important. Most people keep confusing corporate brands with the ability for them succeeding in certain projects. And I don't think that actually matters as much. Like, you know, it, Amazon does not succeed at certain things. The team at Amazon that's working on the Kindle is what succeeded. But, that's, you know, so it's, it's actually all about the team that you're creating. And what you, as a product leader, the way I think about it is all we're doing is placing bets. And we place bets on the team, the opportunity in the market, the strategy that they have, and why I believe that they are the right people to solve the problem. And how important do they feel it is for them to solve the problem that if they didn't solve the problem, the world would look different. You know, because that problem unsolved by that team would actually make the world look very different compared to whether that team ended up solving it. That's when you know that you've actually put, got the right combination in place. And once you feel like you've got that combination in place, then you just got to make sure that you give them enough autonomy to go say, go figure out what you need to do and come back once you've got, um, you know, once you've got enough input from the market on whether or not the problem that you think you have is in fact a problem that people have that they're willing to pay money for. And when they pay money for it and then they use their product, they're in fact going to get value to the degree that you thought they were going to get the value. So does that make sense? Very, very, very good points, and uh, it makes me think uh, of of a quote that I read one or two days ago uh, of the CEO uh, who succeeded um, Jack Ma at Alibaba, uh, who was saying, uh, "I I prefer to see uh, internal businesses killing our own businesses than businesses from another conglomerate killing our own businesses." So. I love to have uh, teams building up businesses or launching products that are killing our own uh, products and businesses. Which one? Really good companies always think about making sure that they can make their own products obsolete. They don't get attached to the solution. They get attached to the problem. Very right? good point. Don't get too enamored with the solution you build because solutions are temporal. Problems tend to have a longer shelf life. Very, very good point. And... Um, so if, if we have the right team, if we have the very big problem, a great vision to solve that problem, and now it's all about execution and, and learning fast. So what, what kind of rhythms uh, have been important to you and useful to you uh, as a leader? So I'm talking about all ends, weekly, monthlies, and some companies and some leaders uh, obsess about the particular rhythm or ritual that they follow in order to align the team? Yeah, so one of the things we um, 
do at the highest level is um, there's a um, core rubric that's used, which is, you know, is the, and these are all kind of in um, sequential order of importance. Uh-huh. The most important thing, once you've got the problem, is the timing. You know, have you got the right timing? The second most important thing is, do you have a really large market that you're going after that you can go attack piece by piece? So timing is the most important. You don't control timing. Market is the second most important. Timing trumps market. The third most important is is the team. This is always a debate because sometimes people will say, well, does market trump team or does team trump market? Market always wins. If you have a great market with an average team, market lifts you up. If you have a great team with a shitty market, market will drag you down. So, you know, timing trumps market, market trumps team. Team trumps product. Um, But the next most important thing after team is product. You have to make sure that what you're selling is your product. So if your product isn't good, then I believe, frankly, that there are a lot of companies that actually succeed with mediocre products. But I personally don't feel like I want to associate my name where <laughs> product that I'm not proud of, right? Like that doesn't seem like it would be fulfilling in life. So timing, market, team, product. The next one is brand. Uh, you know, it's, it's really important that a company, you know, one of my mentors has given me this piece of advice is, to make sure that whatever you go, that, you know, um, the company hasn't lost its brand mojo. It's okay for the company to not have a great product and have a great brand because you can fix the product. But once you've lost the brand, it's very hard to fix the brand. Very, very few examples in the world where they had almost lost the brand and then they've resurrected it, right? The timing market team, product brand, and the last one is distribution. Uh, just because you built a product with a great brand, people don't just keep coming. Like you have to make sure that you've got to have scale distribution to make that. So those things you have to keep in mind as you're going through. Now, how does the execution work on a day-to-day basis while you're incubating new ideas? And how does the execution work at different stages of the product? We typically look at um, a three-year cycle in a product. Um, that's pretty important. So the first year when we look at a product, uh, uh, it's um, you know, um, we really focus on have we picked the right problem to solve? And is our thesis on the problem, in fact, being validated in the, in the market? Okay. So um, the hypothesis that we had on this is the problem that we think we need to solve. Is that something that we are actually getting validation from the market? Because market feels that that is also a problem that they're willing to pay money for and use. Um, and so um, that's the first thing we look at. The year two is all about, okay, you've actually identified and you know you have to kind of do things that don't scale first so that you can eventually scale, right? So you have to make sure that in those initial days of a product going to market, you've identified eight or 10 customers and you can figure out a way with white glove service to make them wildly successful. And so we do, we are very obsessive about that. In our beta cycles, in our early adopter customers, we've got this kind of flagship 10 program where like the first 10 flagship customers, how do you earn them? And how do you make sure that whatever we need to do, if we need to fly an engineer to them to go see them so that we can actually get that customer to be successful, we need to make them successful. We're not thinking about scale at that point in time. Why is that? Because if you don't, if you don't put your best people in the initial customers and you can't be successful, the chances of that actually succeeding at scale is almost zero. 
right? So you have to validate that the, the core um, solution that you have is in fact what the customer is looking for and that they can in fact succeed with that, that, that solution. Okay. So the first year is making sure that you get to product market fit and you get to that flagship 10 customer and that you've got market validation and we really focus on that. The second part, um, kind of part is making sure that you can get a repeatable selling motion. That repeatable selling motion says, I know how to sell this thing over and over again in exactly the same way. I know how to find opportunities in exactly the same way. I know how to make sure that I can progress the opportunities in exactly the same way. And I know that I can convert those opportunities into close customers in exactly the same way. Like there is not a, too much of a variance in motion in doing that. There is a repeatability to that motion. Once you've got that identified and what that repeatability is, then the third thing we look at is the actual scaling in different segments, different geographies, different markets, all of that. And each one of those we have metrics for that we look at. So then year one, we put blinders on and say, have we gotten a product market fit? If we've not gotten a product market fit, don't really worry about whether or not you're going to get to X number of revenue dollars. Because if the revenue dollars come in, you can go sell a big customer. But what's not going to happen when you sell that big customer is that customer is not going to retain because you haven't proven that they can yet get value out of it. So we just launched a new product called Box Shield, which is coming out on October 29th. We spent nine and a half month time period to go out and do a beta. Um, where we just continually work with customers very closely and we flew out to the customers and our product team and our engineering team went out and saw customers and said, what would you like to do? And we changed our product to make sure that they it met the needs of those initial customers to say, are we making sure that we're in fact meeting needs across segments, across industries, across customers? We were building a massively horizontal product, but for a particular persona. Once we did that and we felt comfortable now we're going into the repeatability of the selling motion. So that's the phase that we're in now. Um, and then the third phase will be just kind of start scaling it up. And each one of those might take different points in time, but you will know when you get them. Like you know when you have product market fit because your retention curve is pretty good. You understand why retention occurs. You know why people keep coming back to your product. Usage is strong, but more important than usage, the value that they're deriving from the product is even stronger. Got it. Uh, something that might be interesting about the, the scaling up journey, uh, as you were describing about opening new geos, opening new segments, opening new new verticals, is that uh, in in some companies, and I think that Box as uh, clearly can benefit clearly a, a strategy of having different segments like small businesses, mid markets, and enterprise, because the virality of the product uh, helps. Uh, as a process to get in uh, even enterprise customers, kind of the Salesforce uh, model. So start small and then uh, keep going uh, up with, with your clients. So in, in those kind of businesses, this, this can be a little bit complex because the way you sell to small businesses, maybe with a self-service platform, uh, is different from the way you sell to mid-market and from the way you sell to enterprise. Uh, and this can create a lot of uh, lack of focus on, on in terms of execution. So uh, what is your experience kind of solving those kind of um, issues or how to get more focus to the team by committing to a certain vertical or to certain geos 
when you have this complexity of enterprise, mid-markets and, and small business? Yeah, that's a really good question. And we actually have this, um, we think about this quite deeply all the time because one of the things that's very important is you cannot deviate from your core ethos and product principles too much. And so one of the things that we've done is we've actually uh, built out like seven core product principles. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Of um, so one of our product principles is we are going to build um, you know, horizontal software for the masses. Okay. That is our core ethos. That's what we do. And so we will not build specialized software for a particular vertical industry that only, only people in the vertical industry can use because our business model is structured to build horizontal software for the masses with low cost per seat and many, many seats that actually make volume sales. That's how we do it. Like we, have, we have built, you know, when... When a company with 300,000 employees uses our product, all 300,000 employees use our product. It's not like 1,000 employees use our product and the remainder of them buy shelfware and no one uses it. Like literally, by design, you want to make sure that everyone uses it. So that's the first kind of, you know, that, that's one of the key principles we look at. Another principle we look at that actually couples and ties with that is keep the product and the experience insanely simple. Now, all of these are interesting principles in and of themselves, but the, what, what's actually more important about them is that the exact opposite principle has created billions of dollar companies, right? So for example, building horizontal software for the masses, there are companies that are very successful that have built vertical software for niches. You don't have to build horizontal software for the masses to be successful. But what we had to do was we had to say, we are going to make an explicit trade-off. When we are at a juncture, we need to make sure that we pick one direction versus the other, and this is the direction we're gonna pick. We're gonna pick the direction of building horizontal software for the masses. We're gonna pick the direction of keeping our experience insanely fucking simple. What that means is, if you're gonna keep it insanely simple, we will sometimes give up and trade off, you know, number of features if those features create too much complexity. And that is a trade-off that a product manager knows that they can make because it's not about getting the most number of features and it's about getting the features in a way that masses can use, your, can, can use your product. And the third one, which also fits into that, is we really focus on network effects. And the reason we focus on network effects, network effects being defined as, you know, every individual that uses Box, it is more valuable for them to use Box when more people use Box. Right, and so the more people that end up using Box, it's more valuable for every individual that continues to keep using Box, and that network effect creates a level of virality. And those three fit hand in hand, kind of hand in glove with each other, and are very, very important for people to think about as they're building products because they will make decisions when I'm not in the room or Aaron's not in the room, which will actually align with those things, and they're not going to make decisions like we we would not want someone to come into box to build a product that is a vertically oriented product only for one industry because why because we build horizontal products you know and so i think that's pretty important that every company goes out and identifies what their core principles are and then make sure that those principles are very clearly communicated to everyone in the organization so that we don't you don't spend too much time in debating the things that don't need to be debated because your um your core foundational principles need to be very aligned you know, uh, you can debate you can debate strategies on how you go about building horizontal products, but don't debate whether or not you have to build horizontal 
products. That's our go-to-market motion doesn't work for vertical products. Our pricing structure doesn't work for vertical products. Our staffing model doesn't work for vertical products. So like our business model would not work for going out and building vertical products. So we have to build something that's massively horizontal. That I think is a core ingredient of success in ensuring that you know people are very clear on not deviating too far off from your DNA. You know, because your DNA is your DNA and you have to make sure that you're doubling down and winning because you're doubling down in your strengths rather than winning because you're trying to go out and just offset your, your, your areas where you're not that strong. You never take a disproportionate share in the market because you tried to follow someone else's strategy. You want to make sure that you're playing by your rules, not by someone else's rules, not by the competitor's rules. And so that's the thing that we have to, you have to stay true to yourself on. Um, and so that's the thing that we look at very closely when, you know, like these kind of product principles are pretty important. And then that automatically brings you focus to your point. Mm-hmm. So if the focus is, do I need to focus on a vertical or do I need to focus on something else? Well, one of the things that we do is we actually focus on network effects. Uh, part of the reason we focus on network effects is because we believe that the more people that use our product, the more valuable it is for everyone that uses the product. And the experience for every user compounds because there's more people using the product. As a result, we don't focus our product only on the top 20 enterprises in the world. We actually have the same product that a three-person organization uses, that a 400,000 employee organization uses. Now, when you've got that range and spectrum, one of the things that becomes pretty challenging is you can't have a product management process that only takes input and feedback from the loudest customers. Let's say a customer is paying you $5 million a year and they're saying, I'm paying you $5 million a year. I'm, I'm very important to you. And so I'm going to go out and ask for some, some product requests and you're going to have to put it in because I'm paying you $5 million. In our business, that doesn't work. Because what we have to do is use the product that actually 95,000 customers can use. And so if you go out and make the experience overly complicated because one customer asked for, it, or asked for it and they were in a particular vertical industry and they had a very bespoke requirement for that vertical industry, what that'll do is it'll not actually provide the entirety of the customer base with the value. And if you don't provide the entirety of the customer base with the value, that one customer who didn't, who would get the feature would still end up losing because part of the value that they have is that there's a network effect on the product that everyone uses. I can share my file a folder with anyone inside and outside the organization. I can make sure that I can keep it secure inside and outside the organization. I can ensure that there's a workflow that can be approved with someone with, that, that's outside the organization. All of those aspects are dependent on a network effect of the product. That's pretty important to have. So the, the key pieces over there is, you know, focus on the key product principles. Don't deviate from your DNA too much as you're going through this and ensure that the, um, um, the foundational aspects of why you were successful, you double down on rather than trying to copy a competitor because they're, they're, because something's working for them. You will never beat a competitor by following their strategy and trying to get better at what they do best. You will always beat a competitor by doing something that is different from what someone else does. That's, that's really very, very good um, points. And just kind of, provoking you um, so that there is one thing which is business strategy and uh, and I believe that you kind of accumulate at box the the, 
the responsibility of thinking strategy and of thinking product, and both are very linked in, in, in your DNA. But then there is also the marketing strategy and, and the sales uh, strategy. So you can keep loyal to those core product principles and at the same time stay flexible in the way you market and the way you sell that Absolutely. product to different verticals. Yeah, I think you have to be stubborn, you know, like uh, I forget who says it, but like you have to, it's the whole notion of you've got to be stubborn on your vision, but, um, you know, flexible on the strategy or it's yeah. uh, all opinions that are loosely held, like, you know, whatever you talk about, that, that's what you have to kind of keep in mind. Um, so uh, one thing I will say, though, on that front is oftentimes when the product arm of a company and the distribution arm are completely disjointed, what ends up happening is the product that was built for a certain purpose is not what people end up selling. <laughs> that is a recipe for a disaster. So it's very important that while you're building the product, you understand the distribution mechanism available to you and build the product that is optimized for the distro that you have available. And you got to make sure that when you've built the product, that the distribution channel is selling for the use cases that you built the product for, not for the use cases that they think the market needs that you haven't built the product for because they won't succeed, you know? Interesting. And so I think like when those get disjointed, like you start to see some really dysfunctional stuff happen. Like, you know, the sales team is like, well, the market needs this, so I'm going to sell this. But I'm like, I know, but it's like, you, you cannot, you cannot sell a car to operate like a submarine. Like those are two different <laughs> parts, you know, purposes. So, very good points. If you build a a car, sell it for the use case of a car, not of a submarine, because otherwise you will fail. Even if people are duped into buying it, they won't be able to use it for a submarine, and then you're going to fail. Very, very good point and. Uh... Amazing conversation, Jitu. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, and we are getting uh, coming to the last question of the show, which is already a, a tradition. Uh, so you, if you would have the opportunity to, um, to meet yourself four years ago when you were joining uh, Box, what advice would you give to your younger self? So much, so much. Um, <laughs> I would say... Um, the biggest one I would say is um, the most important thing in, um, in life, in my mind, is taking care of your health. And when that starts degrading, um, there's a ripple effect on every single aspect of, of your life. Um, you know, your, your family relationships degrade, your work relationships degrade. And so whatever you do, don't neglect your health for too long, for very long periods of time, because what that does is that actually doesn't bring out the best in you. Um, and so that would be my, like the thing that I, had, I have slipped on from time to time is I'll actually get really unhealthy, out of shape. I'm not sleeping enough. As a result of that, I'm not rested. I'm not at my best in the way I think. Uh, and, you know, there's always going to be times when you have to go intense, but you all just try to make sure that you make the time to recalibrate and, um, you know, I think that that's probably um, one. The second thing I think about is um, um, like life's too short not to have fun at what you're doing. And so if you don't enjoy something for too many days in a row, try to do something different because 
chances are you're not going to do your life's best work in something that you hate doing. It's almost a guarantee. Yeah. Very, very good way of uh, closing the show. G2, it's, it was really a pleasure. Uh, and I learned so much, and I, I'm sure that the community is, is super, super honored also to have your time. Thank you. Congratulations on your success. Uh, and to our, thank you so much, and to our community, thanks for being always so loyal. Uh, keep letting us know uh, what are the guests and uh, the issues that you are facing so we can keep the bringing, bringing the best of the best to help you out scale from 2 million to 100 million and later as box from 100 million to 1B uh, and G2 today uh, has helped us also to start this new series of how to get to 1B uh, and I'm sure that uh, sooner or later G2 would be joining again to let us know how to get to the 10B uh, mark. So thank you so much and uh, see you next week. <laughs>